You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. for today is from Revelations 20 verses 11 through 21 verse 8. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no, no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, and the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. Thank you, Hannah, for reading that text for us today. Uh, when you started tearing up, I was uh, I was a little worried because um, my dad has a tendency to cry on a regular basis whenever he teaches God's word. And uh, as soon as he starts crying, I start crying. So as soon as you started tearing up a little bit as you were reading the word, Uh, I started tearing up a little bit, so I'm going to try to get through this without crying today, but at the same time, it is a uh, remarkably comforting passage that we have in front of us today, and the Lord has used it time and time again in my life uh, to comfort me with it. So uh, hopefully, um, it can be of both comfort and encouragement to you today. Brothers and sisters, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. It's a joy to be able to be with you today. And um, uh, the last time I was here was the very first time you gathered together as a church at King's Cross. And so um, it's wonderful to be able to be back with you and to be able to gather with you yet again. Um, 
uh, I, I, I bring greetings from Imago Dei Church, uh, from, from your, uh, uh, your, your mother church, if you will, uh, right up the road, your sister church, if you will, right up the road. Um, and uh, so the, uh, the, the pastors and uh, your family up there uh, bring you greetings through me today. Um, so without further ado, let me go ahead and get started. Last year, I, I read a book uh, called Heinz Feet on High Places. Um, I don't know if any of you have read that book. Heinz Feet, that is a deer's feet on high places. And it's based on this little verse in the book of Habakkuk, which is a small uh, book in the Bible in, in the Old Testament. And uh, I was just so incredibly blessed by this book. Uh, it's, it was written by uh, a lady named Hannah, who was a missionary, uh, an English missionary to the Palestinian people. And she wrote this book. It was, a, it was basically a novel that was in the form of an, of an allegory. And uh, so everything in the book refers to something Christian, but is not quite Christian. Um, and so uh, the, the whole story sort of revolves around this one, uh, this one woman, and her name is Much Afraid. And she's crippled, and she's deformed, and she lives in the Valley of Humiliation. And she comes to know this shepherd, and the shepherd invites her to come with him from the Valley of Humiliation to the high places, to the, the realm of love, the kingdom of the shepherd's father. And uh, she belongs to this family called the Family of Fearings, and her brothers and sisters and her family are all bitterness and envy and um, self-pity and pride and craven fear. And the shepherd takes her from this family and he gives her two companions, sorrow and suffering. And he, he allows for her to walk alongside of sorrow and suffering up climbing the mountains up towards the high places. And she goes on this journey and every obstacle that she begins to face, it pictures various kinds of fiery trials, danger, tribulation, loneliness, pain, loss, and even death. All the while, she's fending off her taunting enemies who happen to be her fearing family. They follow her to try to convince her not to go with the shepherd, but to come back to the valley. And the story finally, after incredible um, obstacles that she has to face, finally she arrives in the high places, in the realm of love, the kingdom of the shepherd's father. And when she gets there, she washes in this wonderful river of grace. And she is transformed, she and her companions. From being much afraid, she's given a new name, grace and glory. And her companions, sorrow and suffering, are given new names, joy and peace. And generally speaking, the book of Revelation was written to inspire the people of God to faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of trial and opposition. Indeed, all of us, like much afraid, are on a treacherous journey filled with difficulty, danger, hardship, suffering, sorrow are our companions. Every one of us, we need to be encouraged to remain steadfast to the Lord Jesus, 
And there are fewer passages that I can think of in scripture, in all of scripture, that strengthen the believer for hope and endurance like this passage. It gives us a peek at what is coming. I don't know if you're like me, but I can endure a lot if I know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And this passage gives us a picture of what that light at the end of the tunnel is. So we can see what it is that we are enduring for. There is purpose in this. Christ is working these things out according to his design. The text paints us a picture of what the end will look like when Christ returns to execute perfect justice in all of creation and he's, the promises of God, our husband king, are fulfilled when he will come to dwell with us, his people forever. Today, let's together, here's what I want us to do. Here's the main idea. Let's together, let's fix our eyes on Christ. Let's look to the righteous judge and gracious redeemer who rights every wrong and restores all things. Let's consider the passage in mainly these two parts. There will be a subpart to the second one, but the first is a righteous judge who rights every wrong, and the second is a gracious redeemer who restores all things. And that second part will be related to the promises of this redeemer, the promises of restoration. So let's start with a righteous judge who rights every wrong. Look there in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. The author, John, sees this great white throne, the, the final judgment seat of God. And on the throne is this one who is seated for a particular purpose, for the purpose of judgment, actually, to judge all of creation. And he's seated there, and as he's seated there, it says that from his presence, the earth and sky fled away. Creation is judged righteously. So he is this righteous judge seated on the throne, and he is judging rightly. And in his presence, when he sits on the throne to judge, creation and the sky fled away because there's no place found for them. What that means is the old is passing away and the new has come. When the humanity sinned, the earth, the sky, the sea, and all of God's good creation that he created to be good fell and in, into destruction and death entered the world as a consequence of sin. Sin broke God's good creation and so we see that in this judgment that he's making, the very first thing that is under that judgment is actually creation itself. And the creation that has been cursed, that has fallen, is fleeing from the judgment seat of Christ. It's fled away. It no longer has any place in what God is about to do next. And so see that there? The second thing that we see is that all the dead are judged righteously. Look at it in verse 12 and 13. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So we see here that the dead are judged on the basis of what they had done. What I want you to notice is, I want you to notice this is a very comprehensive statement that's going on here. It says, the, the dead, great and small. This is 
all of the dead. This is every person who has died. This is the whole of the dead. It goes on to describe that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So the sea, those that have died according to the sea, those death and Hades, those that have been in the place of the dead, uh, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were all judged, each one of them, according to what they had done in verse 13. And so uh, uh, we see that, that all of those who have died are, are coming before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that the, de- the dead are judged according to, on the basis of their deeds, and in particular, whether or not their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see that there. If, anyone, if anyone's name was found written in the book of life, if anyone's name was not found in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all the dead are judged righteously. Notice the comprehensive nature of this. And then he says, it says that our great enemies are judged righteously. You see that in verse 14. Then death and Hades themselves were thrown into the lake of fire. Now first, God's enemy, we actually see that back in verse 20. Uh, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire of sulfur. And he was there to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we see that Satan, the one who came disguised as a serpent to tempt humanity in the garden, the one God promised would be crushed under the ultimate blow of the heel of Christ, Satan was thrown into the lake of fire. In fact, this is the place of eternal punishment that was created by God for him. And so he is thrown in this place to no longer have any level of dominion over over creation or over the people that God has made. And then the second thing that we see is not only has Satan, God's enemy, been placed in the the lake of fire, in, in hell, but we see that our greatest fear, death, the thing that we brought into the world by our sin, will also be thrown into the lake of fire, will be thrown into hell, meaning that no longer has dominion on us either. Can you imagine this? A world where death will be done away with. We're just talking about the kinds of travesties that are going on right now in Russia and Ukraine, in Ukraine, Ukrainian soil, how many people are dying. This is a world that God is getting ready to make new and death will have no place in it. And so yes, God is judging creation and creation in its fallen state flees from his judgment seat. And he's judging all people everywhere, all those who have died and anyone who is not written in the, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life must be placed away from, separated from God. And yes, even here, Satan, the enemy of God, and death itself are placed in hell forever. Now there's a few theological implications that I do wanna, I wanna tease out just a little bit here for us. Some truths, if you will. Some things that I want you to remember about who God is. The first is that God is a righteous judge. There is no partiality in him. This is hard for us to be able to picture because we have so much partiality that is in us. We are so partial. We're so quick to 
to, make, to pass judgments on others on the basis of our bias. And so we have to be very careful here. God is not like us in this way. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then I was reminded of Romans chapter 2, 6 through 11. He says, he, that is God, will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So it's not on the basis of ethnicity, it's on the basis of what we do. Um, But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He is not concerned with your ethnic background. He's not concerned with, with what you, uh, who you are. He is concerned with what you do, and in particular, with what you do with his son. Number two, God maintains sovereign rule and reign over all and will bring all of creation to his desired end. This is one of the things that is most comforting for me, brothers and sisters, to recognize the sovereign hand of the Lord God on our lives, to recognize that he is ruling and reigning over all, and no matter how dire the circumstances get, he will bring all of creation to his desired end. Number three, sin and the effects of sin on creation and in our lives will be brought to an end, including death will be brought to an end, recognizing that reality. Now, I want you to know this. The Lord is not slow, as Peter says, he's not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So recognizing there's gonna be a slew of people who are gonna be coming before the judgment seat of Christ and will end up living and dwelling in hell for, for eternity, separated from God, suffering apart from God. But this is not God's desire. God's desire is that all should come to repentance, that none should perish. He wishes that none should perish. So I want us to recognize that as well. And number four, God will have the last word. All of humanity has sinned against God and are deserving of eternal punishment. It is absolute, wonderful grace that our names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. We actually deserve exactly what Satan has been designed to. Like where he's going is where we deserve to be. Where death is going is where we deserve to be. And yet, because of what Christ has done, that is not our future. All but the Lamb's redeemed will be condemned to an eternal separation and suffering apart from God. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now why is this this important for us to recognize, to see? First, brothers and sisters, you know this better than I do, I'm sure. We have all experienced so much suffering, sin, struggle in this fallen world. It's full of pain. 
sorrow, heartache, death, destruction, disaster, guilt, shame, fear. We're weary of it. We're broken down by it. Sometimes it's too much for us to bear. And it causes us to ask the question, is there any hope? And the answer to that is a strong yes. God is going to sit on his throne and do away with this fallen world. All the effects of sin and sin and death are going to be gone. No more. Now for those of us who belong to Christ, I want us to remember today, we were the rebels deserving of righteous judgment against us. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. We actually deserve to be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, to be separated from God in suffering forever. But God has redeemed us by the blood of his lamb. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, Titus 3, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Not according to anything that we have done, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Be encouraged at the coming of the judgment of Christ, for we are promised the kingdom. Because of the grace he has bestowed on us, we will be judged on the basis of another. The righteous lamb, the lamb of God, who took our sin and suffered in our place. Brothers and sisters, this should cultivate an incredible sense of gratitude in our hearts. For where we could have been, should have been, and where we will be, when he comes to put everything right, in its right place. Now, there may be those here who don't belong to Christ. There's a warning for you in this text. And the warning is that you are still dead in your sins. You're still apart from him. And you're still under the righteous judgment of a holy God. But there's still good news. Second point here, we've talked, about, we've talked about this righteous judge who's gonna make everything right. Now let's talk about this gracious redeemer who's gonna restore all things. The first thing that we see that is restored in 21.1 is that creation is restored. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so the old heaven, the old earth, the old sky, the old heaven, and the old earth has fled away from the judgment seat of Christ. But now I see a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The old is gone, the new has come. 
this new heaven and earth that God is bringing into the world would it be a world where there is no night, there's no darkness, there's no death, there's no grief, there's no tears, there's no pain anymore. None of these things will exist any longer. Can you imagine this? This is a world where people no longer sin against one another, where there's no more lies, no more hateful words, no more passive aggressive statements, no more secret sin rotting away in our hearts, no more guilt, no more shame. This world with no broken relationships, in this new heaven and new earth, all of creation would be restored to God's original design. Perfect peace will rule in our hearts and in our lives, in our relationships, in all of God's created world. Everything will be as it should be again. The second thing that we see in verse two is a people who are restored. You see this? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Not only creation, but God's formerly rebellious people would be restored. The text describes his people as a holy city, as this new Jerusalem. She's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In verse nine, she's called the bride, the wife of the lamb. Clearly, this is in reference to the church, God's chosen people, those who have been united to Christ, with Christ by, the, by grace through faith, obtaining the God of their salvation. If we continue reading around this passage, we discover just incredible, remarkable description of this, of this bride. We see she's filled with the glory of God and her radiance is like a most rare jewel in verse 11 of 20, 21. In 21.12, she dwells secure, firmly established on a foundation set by Christ. In 22 of 21, we see her temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. In 23 of 21, we see her light is the glory of God and the, her lamp is the Lamb. In 21:24, we see her light causes the nations to walk and bring their glory into this city. It's gonna be a city, a people that's made up of every people, tribe, and tongue. All of them are going to come up into her. She will be absolutely pure, holy, spotless, clean, nothing unclean or accursed. She will reign on his throne God will reign on his throne with her and she will see the face of God and worship the lamb. Chapter 19, verse six through eight says, we'll sing something like this. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It will be granted to her to clothe herself, fine linen, bright and pure, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In this text, you see, you see that restored people, not only that restored picture of creation and that restored picture of his people, perfect, perfect harmony, made white clean, but we also hear these promises from our Redeemer on how he is going to restore 
and what it's going to look like. And so I want you to listen. I want you to hear. We've seen a couple of pictures. Now I want us to hear some of these promises. The first promise I want you to see is that our husband will dwell with us. In verse three, look at it there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. From the moment that our first parents rebelled against God and were cast from his presence, this has been the heart cry of all of humanity. We want to dwell with God again. We want to be with him again. But God is holy and we are not. How can a holy God allow rebellious, unclean sinners into his presence? Only by the blood of the lamb. In him, Ephesians 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, making known to us that he had, what he had longed planned to do in Christ, in and through Christ, that at the right time, he had planned to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. He had planned to unite us again. Those of us, all of us, humanity, had rebelled against him, run away from him, been cast from his presence, and it was his plan that in the fullness of time to reunite us with him through the cross. In love, the Father pursued us and caused us to be adopted into his family through his beloved son. 2,000 years ago, a young prince set out to lay his own life down so that we might become his bride. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story. That's our story. That's how we got to be where we are. That's how we're going to end up where we're going. Now that we've been made righteous through the redemption of Christ, we know we can trust this problem, this, this promise that he will restore us to dwell with him physically again, to dwell with God, God dwelling with his people. The second promise is that our husband will restore all that is broken. See this in verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The death and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How many of you have kids? So I have two daughters, and my daughters have a tendency to cry on a regular basis. Um, I don't know if it's their age, or if it's that they're little girls and there's lots of emotion that's going on. I, I don't know what it is. But... I find myself thinking of this passage often whenever I reach out my thumb and I wipe away a tear, big old crocodile tear off of my daughter's eyes. And I think about the, the, the personal nature that the, the just so, is so intimate that I would do that. I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. If I see one of you crying, I'm not going to walk up and wipe that tear out of your eye. I might come give you a hug but I'm not gonna wipe that tear out of your eye. That is such an intimate picture of what it is that Christ is going to be to us 
when he dwells with us in his new creation. That's how close he will be to us. It's so wonderful. He will make all the sad things come untrue. This is the one of the most comforting aspects of our hope that Christ will personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. He reminds us that he intends to do away with all sin, all pain, all sickness, all darkness, all death, all decay. Nothing will rot anymore. From now on, there will only be life and light and joy and security and peace. We will dwell in his presence and have no lack of any good thing. This is so wonderful. It's, it's almost too good to be true, and yet it is true. Promise number three, our husband will give life. Verse five through eight, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I, so the thing he set out to do from the very beginning, it is done. It's completed. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. No one who conquers, I'm sorry, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Our husband will give life. We see here that he is first the author of life. Christ says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. Indeed, he is the first, the foremost, the a- of absolute preeminence. And he is the author of life. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Christ, he is our rock. It's from him that we have life. Cling to him. Though we will change and will grow old, he will remain the same forever. Life everlasting. Let's remain faithful to him. He's the giver of life, not just the author. He says, to the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. Catch that, guys. He says, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. This is the same language that he used with the Samaritan woman at the well when he was ministering to her in her need. He freely offers himself as the source of life itself to any and all who will receive him, as we sang just a moment again, to those who will trust in his name. It's without payment. I need you to see this, brothers and sisters. He says, to the thirsty, you're looking for satisfaction. You need something and it finds its source in him. And he says, come to me and you will receive it. Not because you have earned anything, but because he already made payment for it with his blood so he can give you the water of life in him. It's not something we earn, but that is given to us without payment. He already made that payment. He's not only the giver of life, but the sustainer of life. Christ says in verse seven, to the one who conquers, he will be given an inheritance with Christ as a son. What does it mean? What does he mean by this, conquering? What is this inheritance that he's talking about? 
This is the same lang- language that he actually gave in the very first part of the, uh, the first chapters of Revelation. He gave it to, to each of the seven churches as he was talking with them. And he kept saying, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Ultimately, to conquer is to endure to the end. And to obtain an inheritance is to gain all that is Christ's through our union with him. Our ability to endure, to persevere, to continue to the end is wrapped up in who Christ is and what he has done. So if he is going to endure to the end, we know that if we are united with him, we too will endure to the end and obtain the inheritance that he himself is going to receive. Promise number four. Our husband, it's a reminder of what we've already talked about at the beginning of this chapter, or the the last part of the last chapter. Our husband will judge righteously. Verse eight, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This fourth promise, I think, serves as a warning and a reminder to us all. Jesus said that there's nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Our brother John, in a different book, said in 1 John that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, that there's really two types of people in this world. There are those that their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life and they have an advocate before the throne of God. And then there are those that have not been written in the name, Lamb's book of life and they have no advocate. And so God sees them as cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. He does not see his son when he looks at them. But when he looks at us, he sees his son. He sees the blood of Christ poured out for us. So the invitation is for us to trust him. First, I want to speak to those who are not Christians as I close. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed for for man or for for a, a human one life to live and then comes the judgment. We only have one shot on this. Not throwing away my shot. Death is coming. Don't wait. Don't wait. But look to Christ. Trust him. Now, Jesus says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. He has already made payment for your sins. That you might 
live by faith in him. Come to Christ and find in him your satisfaction. Come to Christ and find in him your rest. Come to Christ and know that you are safe and secure in him. Know that he will never cast you out, but will keep you and preserve you in the day of judgment. Come to him and drink without price. To those of us who belong to Christ, my encouragement to you from this passage is, let us remain faithful to him in the face of pain and sorrow, suffering, difficulty, trials, tribulations. Let's remain faithful to the end. Lord, that we would be those who conquer. Cling to him. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Endure by the strength of his might. As it says in Hebrews 12, one through two, brothers and sisters, let's lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. We were the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross for us. He bore our shame for us. He is now seated on the throne, interceding as an advocate for us. So let us lay aside every weight and every sin and run whatever race he sovereignly sets before us to run. Look to Jesus, who endured the cross and became our gracious redeemer, who right now is seated on the throne and will right every wrong and will restore all things. Give yourselves fully to him, knowing that he is trustworthy and true, that he has you and will preserve you to the end. And as we endure, let's long for his return. We're waiting for him to come back. Come, the spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears it says come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these wonderful promises that you have given us in your word. The recognition that you are working all things according to your design. That you have complete control over what is going on in the world, in all of creation, in our lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters, in the life of this church, in the life of this city. All of it is under your sovereign hand. It's wonderful to know that we are thirsty. We were thirsty. And you say to the thirsty, come and I'll give you drink of living water without price. Father, what a, what a wonderful thing it is to be sustained, to be strengthened, to be encouraged by you 
to be filled with your spirit, to be unified with Christ, to know that our future is safe and secure in you. Father, we ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit on this city that many more who are thirsty, who are unsatisfied, might come to know you. Let it be so. Lord, as we wait, help us to lay aside all of our weights and sins. By your grace, help us to walk with endurance. Fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, that we might count our various trials as joy, knowing that you are working something in us. You are making us more and more like the like your son. Help us to long for the return of Christ. Help us to wait well. It's in Christ and we pray these things. Amen.